Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Law Librarian Conversations on Blog Talk Radio, the podcast about all things law library, legal bibliography, and the law library profession. Thanks for joining us. Okay, well, welcome everybody to a um, long-awaited, gosh, I don't know what to call it, our reunion program. Um, We haven't had a podcast in a while, um, but we're back after a year's uh, sabbatical, um, sitting in the seat. We've got an interesting program for you, and uh, we're all... Uh, rested and refreshed after taking all this time off. Um, little information that nobody you really don't need to know about, but I just can't help but um, put it out there as sort of an, a, an advanced excuse for any mess-ups. The last podcast that we did uh, was in Philadelphia last summer at the annual meeting, and apparently that changed my uh, system preferences in the studio for the program. And so I found out about an hour and 10 minutes ago that we um, were set to air an hour ago. So um, if I sound a little bit disorganized, it's because um, I am. Uh, I had to be on with technical support and reset it. Anyway, frazzled. Um, but I'm back, um, as are my uh, new, slightly new um, iteration of uh, co-hosts. We have Roger Skalbeck at the University of Richmond. Hey there. Hello, Roger. Hey there. All right. And Elizabeth Farrell Clifford from Florida State. Hello. Um, hello. hello. All right. And we have two... Um, uh, guests from the law firm world, uh, Greg Lambert, hailing from Texas. Hello. And, um, and you're a VIP in AALL these days, right? Uh, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, incoming president, right? Yeah, or the vice president this year behind uh, Ron Wheeler, and I'll be president at the end of the conference next year. Yeah. Okay, so that's a reminder to everybody else on the call to mind their P's and Q's. Um, and then Gino Grady, hailing from the Hello. East Coast, and I'm told just down the road a piece in Kansas City. Hi, Gene. Hello. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, and we may get a call or um, um, a chat from um, Ken Hirsch may be joining us if he's not too busy. Um, He's got some things going on, some personal things going on. Um, And actually, but he will be joining us next month. And if I'm not mistaken, by then we will know the outcome of um, his um, 
participation in Jeopardy. I think he's already taped his uh, episode of Jeopardy. We just he just is under a gag order for explaining how it came out. I think it's because, well. He didn't quit know? his job, so we assume that he didn't make you know more than a million dollars. But we don't. Yeah, know. He just he just loves being a librarian that much. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He um, does he have an air, air, does he have an air date yet? Yeah, it's, I think it's early October. So um, if I, oh, I'd have to, have to look that. back. Right huh? What was that? We have to promote that. Yes, yes. That's. I hope he joins us. And um, oh, and then I should also mention we have a new um, in-studio panelist. Did you find the chat room? Oh, okay. So I have a new person in studio, such as it is, um, here in the um, uh, at the Schmid Law Library, Mandy Lee, who is a brand new um, reference librarian. She just started with us less than a month ago. So um, she's replacing Marcia Doherty Baker, who has left uh, law librarianship and is now playing with uh, computers at the main university. So she will be my in-studio person, kicking me under the table, help me remind me to move on, and um, what she's doing right now. Uh, and she'll be monitoring the uh, chat room. Oh, and I guess I should introduce myself, unless I did already. Did I? I'm Richard Leiter um, at the University of Nebraska. Um, okay, and it's really good to be back um, and to have these uh, conversation. I've really missed the time uh, getting together with everybody and um, so we have a lot of uh, things to catch up on. Um, and I guess I wanted to also, to the people that are listening or who will be listening, um, Roger and Elizabeth and I uh, got together and talked about it. And going forward, what we're, we're hoping to do this once a month, uh, get back on a regular um, schedule, somewhat regular, and hopefully by the end of the podcast, somebody can remind me when our next podcast is scheduled for, October 20-something. Am I right? But by the um, end, we'll remember. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have that date in a moment. We look it up. Huh? October 21st. 21st, maybe. yeah. Yeah. And we're going to have a couple of, we're going to try to have a couple of regular features um, you know, going forward uh, each month, uh, Frank Hodeck has agreed to uh, join us for a five-minute uh, sort of this month in history um, of AAAL, uh, just do a little um, segment for us and talk about the history and about uh, luminaries um, past and present. And then uh, Emily Feltrin, the government affairs representative for AAAL, has agreed to um, and is excited about um, joining us uh, for just a brief presentation on um, uh, sort of a government affairs, <coughs> excuse me, update. And so I'm looking forward to that. 
Um, this year, neither Frank nor Emily uh, was able to make it. Um, we invited them a little late. They will be with us in the future, and um, we're hoping that that'll help us all get into a rhythm and a little bit of uh, stability. But in any case, um, for the time being, um, boy, we have a lot of uh, stuff to cover. Uh, it seems like there are there's lots of news. Um, and so what I thought that we would do is we would just sort of go around the table, so to, so to speak, and um, take an uh, item that we want to talk about and um, uh, just of news of things that are that have happened uh, recently that we've uh, picked up on. So anybody want to go uh, first? Oh, and then what we'll do is we'll leave sort of the broader discussion about the um, status of libraries. And uh, we kind of wanted to um, focus on the challenges of the um, for the gatekeepers. Um, uh, the um, with the article that uh, David Perla from Bloomberg um, threw out there um, just recently and um, comment on that. So, all right. So, who, anybody have any news they wanted to raise? I'll start things like, out. Oh, good. Yeah, so I'll start things out. I mean, I think um, we've got a short roundup of headlines that we wanted to kind of run through here. Uh, quick, give an update on it, see if people have comments, and then we can maybe move on. Starting out with something that's relatively academic focused, but I think um, definitely has um, signals for uh, commercial area as well. Uh, Reed Elsevier bought SSRN, a Social Science Research Network, which is a platform that has been historically used for distributing um, typically working papers, but also final papers and things like that. And it's been on the minds of uh, many a law librarian and many a research dean and academic dean of well, what does this mean? So quick version of the situation is um, big multinational publisher, takes over something that had relatively grassroots development and origins, and now we're wondering, what does this mean? And going back a little bit from that, uh, Reed Elsevier had also bought a similarly kind of positioned thing called Mendeley, which is a platform that people, uh, scholars have used for citation management. And so now, um, Elsevier owns all elements of or all points along the spectrum for one style of research, collecting citations, distributing pre-publications, sort of working paper style things, and then, of course, the thing that we know that they classically own, which is a lot of the commercial publications. The headlines that came out around July when people were gathering in uh, Chicago for the American Association of Law Libraries conference were that Elsevier was taking things down because people didn't have proper copyright, which was some of the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that was coming out um, when the acquisition happened. It's not clear if that was a mistake or if that was a signal for the direction they're taking. Yeah. I think that a lot of um, people heard when they heard the news just immediately jumped to the um, assumption, and I've 
no doubt but that there anybody's paranoia about this has so got to be right is you know when a reed elsevier is a um you know is all, is a corporate uh publisher and it's all about profit so if they took over fsrn any move that they would have made you just have to assume that it was for the money so uh yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it fleshes out. I don't know if I don't if, to provide a, some not quite a counterpoint, but I don't know if it was all about the money in the sense of profit or if it was more of a all about the money in the sense of being risk averse. Because I can see SSRN, you know, like you said, grassroots, small target. All of a sudden, um, Reed Elsevier buys them, and you know, a publisher that might have not given SSRN a second thought, you know, they don't, they're not deep pockets, um, all of a sudden might be go, hmm, let's, you know, maybe we need to look at this SSRN and see what people have posted. And because, um, you know, let's be frank, Reed Elsevier has very deep pockets and, you know, might be a target for copyright infringement suits. Yeah, you know, and, and you're right. Absolutely right. One of the things that Reed Elsevier was uh, weakest in, um, as far as Lexis uh, Nexus goes, was in secondary materials. I mean, it was weaker, or it was its weakest uh, link in that that marketplace. You know, vis-a-vis uh, -vis West um, or Westlaw. So, you know, SSRN is kind of a clever way of jumping into, um, you know, access to secondary materials, um, you know, academic, but they were there and freely available. So, so a last, my, my last comment, if the other people have stuff to chime in on this, I'd be happy to hear as well. But last comment where this, this might actually not have anything to do with copyright. Some people have said, well, no, what they're buying is data. What they're buying mm -hmm. is is analysis of the relationship of citation patterns between published works so that they can understand how, what is the relationship between these things. And also, what does the data look like for what topics are popular? What gets people's interest? Where do the downloads come from? What's the ecosystem of acquisition content publishing right so you know greg and and gene i'm real curious did i mean did this news phase you guys or any of your attorneys at all uh, no i don't think so i mean i i have been very focused more on their continual acquisition of legal news, the kind of news that law firms consume in, you know, they, in the recent years they bought Law360, MLEX, um, they, they bought the Alex Machina, they have an exclusive relationship with American Lawyer, they have an exclusive relationship with uh, the Wall Street Journal. So they have collected a lot of the most important business and legal resources under their umbrella, whether they own it or have an exclusive relationship. That's where my focus has been. And, you know, I think in some ways SSRN sort of fits into the, what, I guess what Roger called the ecosystem, that they are really aggregating a powerful set of content, secondary content. 
What was and the maybe, first you know, thing that you mentioned? Other, that so re- one last thing I was going to say is that they had also bought a news aggregation platform, which, interestingly, that could be another thing that could be fed into the news aggregation platform. Huh. I didn't yeah, know I that think, they Yeah, I think Gene's uh, covered pretty much everything. It's you know, the uh, consolidation's always uh an issue. Uh the the less ways you, you have to get to a resource, the more expensive that's going to be and also the you know, the harder it is to, to actually get to the information that, that you that you need. So, so. Huh. Well, yeah, well Okay. It's getting bigger and bigger. Well, here's the segue. If that's about data, and it's interesting that Lexus is buying Lex Machina and things like that, um, what was AAL's product of the year this year? Gravel Law's Judicial Analytics, right? So, which that's squarely in the, the law firm market. In fact, um, questions went around the uh, academic directors of what is this and, and how do we fit it into teaching? I'm curious, um, Gene and Greg, your thoughts and, and everybody on the call here. Um, wh- how, does it fit into the, the law firm world? And more importantly, like, uh, are you starting to see people use it if you've subscribed to it or, or hearing of other firms actually kind of using this as data beyond just curiosity? Uh, it's definitely beyond curiosity. Uh, you know, it is being used. Uh, it's being used both for... Uh, business development in terms of you can actually look at uh, the analytics around a a judge's motion history and look at, you can either look at a judge or a district and say, in this kind of litigation, how do they tend to rule? What is the time to trial? What is the time to motion grant? How, How many motion grants? So it actually has some very, very practical implications in terms of becoming an expert either in in advance of a client meeting or understanding the vulnerabilities and the advantages you might get, you know, the vulnerabilities of your opponent or, uh, you know, just trying to litigate powerful insights on behalf of your client. So I absolutely believe analytics are are a very important component of the future of um, litigation and also uh, transactional law. I mean, if that information is out there, the law firm that has those insights is going to have an advantage. And then I think the, the bigger, I think the bigger possibility is the application of predictive analytics. I don't know if you saw this, but a couple of months ago, Lexus announced that they had a added a predictive model for legislation and regulation. Well. I think that is the next thing that's going to come. There are going to, I, I think within a year or two, there are going to be predictive products that, you know, obviously it's not going to be 100%, but it's going to be the kind of things that I think financial traders use to sort of to determine trades. I think law firms are going to get access to data that gives them probabilities, very powerful probabilities in regard to litigation and deals. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the issues that we have is that we have a number of 
very creative and pretty much ingenious. I mean, just genius ideas that are coming out. A lot of those um, out of the incubator, out of uh, Stanford. Mm-hmm. But um, one of one of the problems with this is it, it, you know, we're we're content is king, and I think this is probably the core reason of why uh, Lexus ended up buying. Um, uh, uh, <laughs> help me out, Gene. Who'd they buy? Lex Machina. Lex Machina, thank you. Oh, the reason okay. they bought Lex they Machina. They bought so much, I wasn't sure which one you were talking about. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> uh, the reason they bought Lex Machina was because, you know, Lex Machina had a choice of, you know, spending a ton of money to get more content or to be acquired. Um and so that's, you know, you've got companies like Lexus and you've got companies like West and uh, Bloomberg, I'm, I'm sure, that have content but not necessarily the best ideas or at least the, you know, these these um, very innovative ideas that these small companies are coming up with. So unfortunately, I see this as, because the content is with the big publishers or you know the the three main players now the ideas are coming from smaller groups you're looking at more acquisitions and more consolidation well let me yeah. let me say the, the the devil's advocate here the other challenge i think we face is have it's not easy to introduce lawyers to a lot of small products, you know, where does this fit into your workflow? And if there is any advantage, and I understand the concerns, when a large, it's, it's only the largest vendors that can build an integrated platform that can lead, and that's what I think all of them are trying to do now. They're trying to integrate research with workflow in lots of ways. You know, they have Lexus Advantage and Practice Point, and Bloomberg has a transactional. So they're trying to move uh, a lot of different kinds of activities into a logical workflow. And I and and data analysis is it, it it may not be there today, but it's going to be. I am absolutely confident it's going to be there in the future. Yeah. Well, let's. Hey. While we're on the subject of um, Ravel Law, sort of a, a side issue that came up yesterday, I was just looking around to see if I can get the exact language. There were a number of people um, that I talked to yesterday who were concerned that the use of the judicial analytics, while it may be a big advance in um, our um uh you know a researchability and being able to analyze cases and so forth um that judges are beginning to push back at the kind of uh, sort of a quasi um or a constructive invasion of privacy by allowing lawyers to dig too deeply and too granularly into their uh, rulings has anybody heard anything about that? It's a public record. How could it be an invasion of privacy? <laughs> well, it's. Uh, I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's more to that story, Rich. But on the surface, it's, it's almost laughable. Um, right. 
I think that a judge has proposed a court rule or something like that. And, and anyway, it was um, it was kind of curious. It's somebody's working on it, uh, preparing a uh, program uh, for next year to go into um, the judicial analytics and sort of this uh, context. I couldn't and Rich, I, I imagine probably where this is going is that I think it, as you start peeling back the onion on this thing, um, you know, and, and everyone knows about uh, um, taking IP litigation to the Eastern District of, uh, yeah. of uh, Texas, yeah. and uh, that it's really right. going to you know shine a spotlight in on some of the the uh, you know the jurisdiction. Little uh, uh, playgrounds that are going on, um, and some of the some of the judges that are handling, you know, tens of thousands of the same style case, and and whether or not is that really what you know what we want to be able to do? And I know there's you know a, a, a thousand other things that are going on on why this is going on, but you know I can see a, a judge that that has specialty like that. May not want that light yeah. shined on him or her. That's well, it seems like the point. genie's out of the bottle as far as you know. Uh, right. Like it is public record, you know. It's hard to put that put that information, yeah. you know, back under wraps yeah. once it's out there. And, yeah. and I think you could also no, make an argument that it that it enhances public accountability. I mm-hmm. mean, judges should be accountable for their workloads. Yeah, that's another good point. Absolutely. Well, okay. Um, let's see, moving on. In other news, I hope everybody uh, remembered uh day before yesterday, history was made, um, at least recent history, by swearing in of a new librarian of Congress who actually is a librarian. Come on, everybody! Cheer! This Yay! No, we we celebrate. I I made sure that um I reminded people so because the um the live stream happened over the lunch hour, so anybody who wanted to could gather and and watch it, and we were all pretty excited about that. And then this year, everybody yeah. probably knows this, but this is the first time that um the term uh, position has been um, brought about. It used to be for life or until, you know, retirement, but now this is a 10-year term that she'll have. So, um, Oh, is that right? Yep, exactly. Yeah. So once the decade I, is up, I, get a new one. But I, well, it's renewable, but I think that actually makes sense given, you know, the history of, you know, when the last Librarian of Congress came in, most of the technology that got introduced was not anticipated by anybody. And I think it is just to make sure that whoever is the Librarian of Congress can adapt to the new, you know, to, you know, wants to bring and is ready to bring the library forward into uh, the next phase of um, the technological evolution. So at least that's from what I have read. I think that was one of the reasons for having the 10-year term. I think that's right. a laudable. Purpose. Yeah, that that, sure. that was an issue, and it was also an issue of uh, being able to pass something in in this Congress that was palpable to everyone. Um, is that uh, they wanted to make sure that whoever it was uh, did not have a lifetime. In other words, uh, one party couldn't couldn't run it for forty years. 
Um, so, um, also uh, speaking of that, uh, of course, wow. uh, I want to give a shout out to uh, David Mao for being the active uh, acting law li- or uh, librarian of Congress. Um, I think he's staying on as as the deputy uh, law or deputy librarian of Congress. But uh, David's a law librarian and and a AAAL member and and former uh, board member. My, and... my wife loves him, by the way. Just absolutely, I yeah. had to tear her away from him. And David, <laughs> so, um, David showed me pictures of the office that the librarian of Congress has, and I think inarguably uh, the best view in any office in all of Washington D.C. <laughs> That's great. Well, I mean, not to mention the fact that it's probably the most gorgeous building in all of Washington, D.C. I still um, can't say enough about it. Anybody who's listening or who will listen, if you've not been there, you must. Uh, yeah, and, and I would say I, I get to do a congressional-sponsored tour uh, We. uh a friend of mine's wife was chief of staff for one of the congressmen, and they gave me one of the tours, and it was amazing. So uh, if you're going to D.C., contact your local congressman and see if you can get uh, a, a congressional tour of the Library of Congress. It's it's amazing. And, and it, also it, it, I just want to mention next weekend is the, the uh, National Book Festival, which is sponsored by the Library of Congress, which is a wonderful event in D.C., Huh. Very good. All right. Um, let's see. Rolling ahead. Somebody else have something else they want to talk about? Uh, if we have time, did anyone see the news today on the uh, the pass rate for Indiana Tech? First, Ooh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so they had 12, 12 people sit. and. And, a, and apparently, I don't think this has been confirmed by the university yet, but it's um, pretty apparent. They only had one person pass the Indiana bar out of 12. Yeah. So a, a, a pass rate of uh, less than 9%, I believe. Yeah. Ugh, that's terrible. Yeah, I feel sorry for those 11 or the 12. Crap. Well, they're one of the newest schools out there, aren't they? Yeah. But here's here's my thought, and this is, this is me being an outsider. I haven't been an academic for years, so uh, maybe you can explain to me. But it would seem that if you're in a class, and I think their starting class was 27. They had 30 mm-hmm. that got accepted, but 27 actually showed up. Man, that would seem like you would have some very personal instruction, and you know you would have the attention of the, of the professors. Your education should be really good, it would seem. Why then the, the such a poor pass rate? Well, you know, there's one of the things that in academics everybody keeps talking about is there's a real careful balance between LSATs and GPAs and trying to keep your um, quality of your students' um, uh, scores high. But at a certain point, those people with uh, higher LSATs and uh, GPAs 
um, are more attractive to um, you know bigger schools uh, with more prestige, and um, so that just leaves newer schools um, sort of scraping the bottom of the barrel and just aren't able to compete for the more competitive, more talented uh, uh, students. I mean, that would be the you know the immediate um, interpretation. And I know my my wife's a teacher, so I, I, you know, she's she's told this, and here's this. You know, we don't teach to the test, but good lord, if if you know you're a brand new law school, you know that that first time out that your students go to take the bar, that that's a that's a big score that people are going to look at whether or not you survive as as a law school, and how a school goes at you know, 8.7% graduate uh, pass rate is is just baffling. Mm-hmm. Well, How do you this, not prepare your students better than that? This is sort of a soapbox that I've been on for years and years, and I won't take up too much time with it, but I just think that the ABA has um, really dropped the ball and um, in weakening its... Um, uh, accreditation standards to the point where, you know, anybody who wants to open a law school can. And um, they're, they just, I mean, in the last, I think, 15 years, there's probably been 10, 15 new law schools opened up. And um seems like every year there's another one or two. And I just don't think that's right. I think the approach that the uh, American Medical Association has taken over the years and being very, very strict about the number of schools that can get accredited um, has really served them well. Um, but so that they, I think that this partly is a reflection on the ABA's uh, weakened um, standards over accreditation. So, and does anybody else have a idea about well, didn't, that? Well, didn't Congress threatened to remove the ABA's ability to accredit? Yeah, it was I think the Department they, of Justice. Yeah, and I think they recently also got scolded by a body of sort of the, the whoever accredits the accreditors, if you will. Um, yeah, I the, think... Yeah, DOE. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. There was yeah. some serious grilling and, and not sure what the follow-up will be on that. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it's, it's terrible. Um, onward, other observations? Well, I just um, I'd hap- like to wish everybody a happy Constitution Day today. Mm-hmm. Much to say about it other than uh, I now officially have fulfilled my law school's duty, and I think we can continue to get federal funding for honoring the Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Roger. Well, well done. Yes. And in in office, Mandy Lee was out speaking at a middle school, middle school today this morning, teaching about the Constitution. So that's right. I forgot it was Constitution Day. Um, did everybody catch the new format at the uh, Federal Register. Um, dot gov. 
And that was just released in the last uh, day or two. It looks pretty cool. No, that's exciting yeah. stuff. Yeah. So I think that in the midst of all this um, process of publishers uh, purchasing, you know, smaller ones and, you know, what do you call it, aggregation of all these resources, it's good to see that the GPO and government and public documents are getting <coughs> out there in better formats and more useful formats. I think it's going to put pressure on the online vendors, at least when it comes to uh, primary law, to really step up the game. So FedSys and um, uh, government publishing office are um, make, doing some good things. Yeah, and I'd have to say we um, typically in the spring uh, in the research curriculum for all uh, first-year law students, we do touch on um, uh, regulatory law and um, and some other sort of advanced things, tracking legislation, etc. Looking at the Federal Register as a process of understanding, um, you know, public law and sort of business regulations, it's amazing how like direct access people get and how it's really it's it would be difficult to have a commercial publisher emulate the um the ecosystem of the whole notice uh, and comment system to try to compete with something like you know what you've got there where you're posting the comments and the supporting documents and everything else like that and it's almost too easy we, we go through a few things in class and people are like huh that's easy. What are people complaining about? <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, let's see. Any other uh, news that we want to touch on? I've got a whole bunch of things uh, written down. Anything um, little newsy things that I don't know if we want to get into that now. I think maybe we can get to the the Perla thing here shortly. But one thing I somebody had highlighted in our show notes, um, there was a library employee at New Hampshire who um, yeah. Uh, yeah passed his estate, went to the university, and what a hundred thousand dollars went to the library, and a million dollars went to a um, sign for the uh, football field. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it was a $4 million gift. He had worked at the New Hampshire, <clears throat> University of New Hampshire Library as a cataloger uh, for 50 years and amassed uh, an estate of $4 million. He gave all of his money to the university. He gave 100000 to the library. All the rest <laughs> what they spent. Well, that was the only part of the, yeah. the gift that was restricted because this is, you know, a lesson if you are – Right. Being a big donor, it was an unrestricted gift, but for the one hundred thousand dollars to the library. So, right. So. It was sort of like, oh, I guess if we have to. Yeah. I felt bad. Sorry, I felt bad for him. Well, I, I kind you of. Know, I'm impressed that a, you know, somebody can um, have a four million dollar estate. With a library yeah. job. That's promising news here. This is good stuff. <laughs> Everybody's going to start applying to library schools. 
Uh, there we go. Let's do it. Yeah. I um I know that was sort of a um this is a segue for one issue that I don't want to spend a lot of time on, but I think it's worth raising and I, I don't know how many people um at large that are listening um you know are affected about it, but um gosh, the um um and, and, and I think a lot of people aren't aware that this happened. The Fair Labor Standards Act uh, was just recently amended. Um, and so, well, revised, the rules were. And um, Department of Labor issued these new rules that changed the definition of managerial and professional employees. Used to be that... Um, you know, you had to supervise and you had to be able, you know, working without direct, you know, with a certain amount of discretion and uh, initiative and stuff like that. Most of us didn't even pay attention to the minimum salary that they needed to earn in order to be in that exempt from the FLSA category. So we would just say, okay, you're a manager. And um, the reason is, is the cutoff for the salary, the minimum, maximum salary that you could earn um, before you were exempt was $27,000, 27,000-something. 27, well, the Department of Labor realized that that number, that 27-plus thousand, uh, hadn't been revised in um, something like 40 years or 50 years. So in their wisdom, they revised them to catch up with the current salaries. And so beginning, I guess, January 1st, the the salary cap is being lifted to $48,000. And so all around the country, I've heard from a number of libraries that have professional librarians who are making, you know, 48000 or or so. And um, suddenly they are non-exempt employees and now have to uh, keep track of their hours for overtime purposes and um i don't know it just in in my dealing with the um university administration to straighten this situation out it kind of became apparent that they um it also poses this issue that we have a profession that is you know, at least at entry level is just tapering, you know, right around the level of, uh, um, you know, a non-exempt uh, employee. And it's hard to treat somebody as a professional when they're, you know, having to turn in a timesheet and get paid every two weeks and stuff like that. So it, it just got me thinking about um, the the role of, or the status of librarians, professional librarians, in some, um, you know, some work situations. Did anybody else on the call here encountered any of these issues? Yeah, it's a, it, going through that same same deal. There's a number of, uh, and, and not so much in IT, but in in some of the departments in the law firm where. They are considered exempt employees, but may not 
um, especially in, in some of the smaller markets, may not hit that threshold now. Um, yeah. And so, so you know, I'll, I'll take the Bernie Sanders uh, socialist, the Democratic socialist side of this is, you know, at the same point, uh, you know, a lot of companies and and universities and and private uh, law firms were really making people exempt that shouldn't have been, and were taking advantage of being able to uh, use the flexibility of that and not have to pay overtime uh, for for some that that they probably should have paid overtime. I think uh, paralegals are are an example of that that they fought years ago. Um, to make sure that they weren't, because they were being taken advantage of in a similar fashion. So, I'll I'll step off the uh, field the burn uh, uh, platform right now. And... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I'm 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 sympathetic. Uh, I don't necessarily. Uh, your, your concern, Rich, about oh, is it you know is it demeaning that these people have to fill out timesheets? You know, I guess I never thought of it in that context. I just thought. You know, man, maybe some of these people that are putting in um, hours, you know, they're che- you know they're on their email at home, they're doing, you know, doing classwork or you know grading, if they're teaching, you know, all this other kind of uh, work that's not being necessarily compensated for when you talk about an hour, you know, hourly. Um, I mean, maybe this is. I mean, I hope it's a net positive. I mean, I, I would think it is. Right, and so I agree with you 100%. The, my concern is more that um, if, if to the extent that being exempt is a status thing, it's just sad that librarians um, and law librarians, where we're, you know, somewhat special, or we think we are, um, <laughs> you know, at the cutoff level um, between that that status thing it it just sort of annoyed me more than anything um my reaction immediately was just give all of those people who are uh in that um you know in that cusp just you know give them raises and get them out of it um i'm also a little bit annoyed that the department of labor didn't decide to phase in 50 years worth of um you know, updates, uh, but instead just did it all at once. It's kind of extreme, but anyway, that's my. Maybe there's a timing issue, Rich. You know, thinking of <laughs> of the election and so on. Not to be political, but maybe they want to yeah. get well, this in. You're, you, you know, you may be right because. You know, also, if you think about it, this is going to have tremendous impact on fast food restaurants around the country. I mean, librarians I, I, are one thing, but managers at McDonald's are suddenly going to be non-exempt. Um, cost oh, of burgers is going to go up. Food service in general, restaurants, retail, you know, there's countless managers, you know, making, you know, 30,000, yeah. maybe less, and they're putting in 60, 70-hour weeks. So this is – yeah, I'm I'm thrilled for them. Yeah, 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 very true. Okay, any more news before we turn to the main event? Okay, no. Roger. <laughs> yes. 
Sure. Well, um, why don't I? Um, I'm gonna let either Greg oh, or Gene wait, wait, get it. Wait, wait, wait. Go before oh. before you before you say anything. I just want to preface this conversation to um, uh, David uh, Perla. Um, open invitation that if he wants to um, join us at some point, he's more than welcome. He has an open invitation. He was a wonderful guest in Philly. So yeah, I was going to say practically our last show. He was with us. So exactly. So I, I actually, what I'll do is I'll defer either to Greg or Gene if you want to um, sort of tee up the context of. Um, David's article in Above the Law, and then if each of you want to kind of give a summary of uh, what you wrote in reply, and I think this might be a good framework for us to talk for a few minutes about the article specifically, but also generally what is going on in each of your views of what the response is and what kind of the market is looking like here. So uh, maybe, Gene, if you want to, do you want to summarize um, David's article, because I think that Greg wrote the first reply, and you wrote the yeah, second. Greg, not, not that one was sort of predicated on the other. Well, I did. I had read Greg's before I wrote mine. Oh, so, good. Okay. Uh, but I, and I was, I was relieved that I was able to write something different. And Greg, Greg did a great job outlining uh, the, the, the. Well, I mean, I think. Well, I guess for, the, for anybody who hasn't read it, a couple of weeks ago, David posted a comment on. Um, above the law, sort of slamming uh, and using the word gatekeeper in a rather pejorative way, suggesting that librarians were preventing law firms. They were standing in the way of law firms adopting innovative products. And the thing is, there's no question that there are some people in our profession who don't embrace new things or technology. There's, all, there's, there's, there's a continuum of people who are content in the past and many people who are pushing for the future. So there is a, there, there, you can't make a generalization about the profession. And yet, having been to many meetings with many of the thought leaders in our profession, he made this very... Um, generic condemnation of librarians, and he did say, and anybody else in law firms, but librarians specifically, who are keeping law firms who are, or I think he was also saying not pushing hard enough to force lawyers to adopt new technologies. And I think that also seems to me very misguided and not understanding what lawyers what it's like to get lawyers' attention, what it's like to get practice leaders' attention, what it's like to vet. Uh, so he he sort of made this very blanket, and I thought a negative uh, comment. The thing that actually upset me more than his referring to us as gatekeepers was down further in his article, he made a comment about uh, having been at the PLL summit and how the librarians at the summit were complaining about not not having – I'm not exactly sure what the word was. But to not me, being that's where he really crossed the line because that was an educational event. His company was a sponsor of that ed- education. And it just seemed to me sort of a – there's like a – like I know I'm going to get somebody mad at me – a gentleman's agreement. You just – when you go to an educational event, you don't criticize the people who are speaking openly 
at an educational event. That was what drove me nuts. I'll, I'll pass it on to Greg to talk more, and then I'd like to make a few more comments after Greg. Okay, before I do the the, the big um, but, I'm going to go ahead and, and I think try try to explain what I think David was trying to do in uh, <laughs> where where the he pearl apologist, huh? Yeah, and where where he yeah. swung, swung and missed at this one. But um, uh, the, let's remember the platform here that he was writing on was above the law, which. Mm-hmm is notorious for kind of being over the top on how it uh, reports on things or how, how the articles are written. It's, um, um, I know they're, they're probably, I think they're trying to sell, uh, be my guess, and, and you see they've changed things where they've expanded their writers to include people like Perla to write a, a monthly column. They've done away with their comments just because they were just god-awful people that would post um, which actually I've, I kind of found funny at some point, but uh, but quickly lost its uh, charm after a while. Um, and I and I think what David was trying to do was was to be somewhat a little over the top, a little controversial, um, and to to get a conversation going. So um, that being said. <laughs> I, yeah. I think where where uh, he where this went wrong was that it got uh, it got way too narrowed on to the law librarians. Um, I thought his his like Gene said his comments about um, what what the law librarians were doing at the PLL summit. Um, to talk about, you know, how how do we get a uh, seat at the table? I think he spun that into basically saying they're irrelevant, and when they had the first chance to be relevant, they uh, flinched in fear, I think is the quote. Mm. Um, and so... Right. <laughs> and, and, I when was he in anybody's office to see that? Yeah. <laughs> well, and... So I, I I do I I totally understand what what I think he was trying to do, and and I will say this about David David is uh, is normally a um, supporter of, of law libraries he's uh, very engaged with the profession um, he he's constantly appearing uh, at at law library events I've I've had dinner with David he's I I think is a very nice guy very bright um it's just on on this one i think he he let himself get out of get out of control on what the message really was trying to do and um i think he I think he was upset probably because things are not going well with with the selling of the new product and even though he says this was not about the product there was an article on or a response on LinkedIn. I don't know if everyone got a chance to see that. That kind of went point by point uh, through through David's uh, article, and and there was one part where he said, "Well, this is not about our tech, our new product." And the guy's response was, "This is 100% about your new product." Um, and, <laughs> Yeah, and so I, and, and so I think it, you know I'm having a mixed feelings here because I didn't like what he said, but I'll, I still like David. Um, so uh, uh, if he's li- if he's listening, David, you know I'll, I'll still go out to dinner with you. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll pay, right, yeah. Rick? 
<laughs> Absolutely. I will pay. No, I, I agree. I think, well, you know, I agree. I, I like David as well, but it, it, I think I think he was quite aware of the of the sort of the raw sensitivities in the private firm community recently, and that's why I thought it was a little bit mean-spirited. And it, it also so easily could have been tempered with there are many, he, he knows that there are many, uh, many of us out there advocating for change, ad- advocating for innovation, and there wasn't even the slightest recognition of that. And that was, that's, that was another thing that surprised me. But again, I think you're right. I think it's the context of the above the law. And I, and I and also, you know, I said repeatedly in my article, David is in a difficult situation because it's my personal opinion that Bloomberg Law was overpriced out of the gate and has had a lot of trouble gaining traction in law for market, largely because of their pricing. And I have had off-the-record conversations over the years with people who have been on the inside who agree or who told me that they thought the pricing was the primary problem with the product. Um, You know, so I, I, you know, I sympathize. He went in there and took it on, but most, all of the pricing decisions were made before he got there. And the other thing, you know, I went back, I had written a a long article um, on Bloomberg Law years ago uh, called, um, actually, No Deals, No Discounts, something like, No Deals, No Discounts, No Kidding, or something like that, or No Apology. And I went back and did a lot of research on how Mike Bloomberg disrupted the financial market, the the financial information market when he introduced Bloomberg Law and basically put the incumbent products, um, one of them was completely put out of business, the other was Thompson, which is still in the business. But he, and he did it by adding layers of metrics and layers of analytics to financial law. And as I was writing my response to David's post, it occurred to me, why did Bloomberg Law go into the case law business instead of going into the transactional business and leveraging all of the financial data and all of the business data? If they had done that, they would have gone onto the market with a truly disruptive, you know, they if they had had an analytics product five years ago, they would have been the first to the market with that. Yeah. But they, what yeah. did they do? They went into case law, which was on its way. At the time Bloomberg Law, it was already well, it was It was already on its way to being a commoditized uh, product, right. you know, case law itself. So I, I, it was something that sort of unveiled itself to me as I was writing. So. Yeah, I I think that you're you're dead on, um, Gene. You know, another thing. When I heard the announcement that they had acquired BNA, um, I remember talking to, um, I don't think David was there when they acquired BNA. But no, I don't think so, no. It was the guy just before him. And I remember saying, oh, man, you, you guys have got a gold mine. This is the way you can stand out from Lexus and Westlaw because you guys have got BNA, in BNA, you've got some of the best secondary materials in the field that they um, address that that money can buy. And if you leverage those things properly, you're going to be able to do things that Lexus or Westlaw couldn't do 
because you've got all of those rich newsletters and reporters. And then, then they never did anything with it. And, and you're absolutely right. They just kept going on, building out their access to, to primary materials. Well, primary materials you can get anywhere now. It's well, really Rich, I'll, I'll, I'll disagree with you a little bit on that one. Um, they were able, to, <laughs> for those of us that had to deal with the uh, Westlaw Next conversion, it took <laughs> years yeah. for West to take its own product and convert it to a single platform. And Bloomberg right. did it, I don't know, in six months, a year? I mean, it was no, amazing. No, that product was being built for a long time. Mm, no, they took all the Bloomberg, or all the B&A stuff. Oh, the you B&A. Oh, you're right. No, no, that's yeah. right. Uh, so Bloomberg took all the B&A stuff, and within months, it was available. And, and so right. I was very impressed with that. Um, but I think Gene's right. I no, think... You know, in yeah. in hindsight, what what probably they should have done was come in and and undercut and try to uh, force out one of the lesser competitors by going in price, which is you know uh, which is pretty typical in this market. You know, you go in low, you get in, and then no one you know once you're in, it's almost impossible to get you out. Um, and so that I think they they had a big uh, miss on that one. When, and I don't think you knew the market. Notoriously price sensitive. I mean, yeah, I just I, don't think that Bloomberg knew the market. I, uh, it was. It, we are not financial institutions. Um, we are. We are unique animals, and if you don't understand that, you will not survive. And I think um, and just Greg's point there of you know, once you stick with one, it's hard to go to another. Um, highlights something Gene said earlier, and it's a bit of a conundrum in both um, what we're trying to do and what David is criticizing, which is change. Trying to introduce a new platform, trying to encourage different behavior to somebody who has only ever approached it with one tool or one um, ecosystem. I'm a Lexus guy, I'm a Westlaw woman, whatever. Um, when you're in that, it, it's really difficult to, to try to change, which is interesting where, so there's two things here real quickly. One, it's difficult to introduce new products to the thing that um, David says is a challenge. Well, it's hard for people to adopt new things. Um, and then I guess the opportunity for Lexus and Westlaw, if they're the ones that remain entrenched and, and are able to sustain some of this, is introducing new features and new a functionality, which Gene had mentioned earlier, where I'm not buying a new product. I'm not subscribing to Fiscal Note for predictive analytics around legislation. I'm not, you know, relying on GovTrack's um, algorithms to to predict that. I'm like, oh, there's the new feature in Lexus, and I now I have to think about that. Now, and also, it, it just if I go back and just clarify what I was saying about the, you know, integrating BNA. I'm not disagreeing with, with you, Greg. Um, they, they did that, but what they didn't, what they, what I was saying was that they had the potential of taking that stuff and um, uh, developing all that secondary material in, into a new analytic or new uh, algorithms, incorporating it into their existing stuff. And I don't think that they've ever really 
exploited that. They've kind of got a citator, uh, but they could do um, yeah. much better. Well, yeah, that, I think you're spot on there, Rich. That, that kind of reminds me of when uh, Walters Kluwer bought uh, Lois Law back in, what, the late 90s? And everyone goes, oh, my God, this is going to be great. You can finally, you know, have all these secondary resources and, and uh, you know, supplement it with all the primary resources you have now. <laughs> and, you know, and I think what uh, didn't Fast Case buy Lois Law out last year? Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just, I don't know. It, it must be harder than, than we think it is. Uh, but, man, it still seems like it would be a, a great resource. Hey, um, just out of curiosity, we, we've got a new caller on the line. Let let me just check and see who this is. You know, it may surprise us. Maybe David. You ready? Baker. Just new listen. Caller five five nine area code. Rich, it's Brian Baker. I'm just calling to say hello. <laughs> You've been hey, listening Brian. in. <laughs> I've been listening in on I was I've been listening in for a while on the computer and I switched to the phone. Ah. Okay. Do you want to uh, continue listening or do you have uh comment? I'm gonna continue listening. I got nothing to add right now. <laughs> All right. Well good to hear uh, from you. Good to hear from you. <laughs> All right. I was thinking maybe we had a surprise uh caller that was a surprise, but um Okay, I'm sorry to interrupt. Continue. Where were we? Well, introducing innovation. Um, what, what do you? I mean, putting aside some of the specifics and not going too much onto, you know, the author here. The underlying thing, um, and this, I think it touches on faculty as well as as attorneys. Something new comes along. It's going to change the world. It's a new way to look at things. It's a new way to do things. What are your prospects of, or what is your um, uh, strategy for introducing innovation? Are we gatekeepers? Are we salespeople? Are we advocates? Are we critical, you know, We're analyzers? We're curators. We're curating all the different things that come out. I mean, because it's not just what the product is. It's what it's what the timing is. It what it's what the need is. It's you know, if you have an incumbent product that you have a legacy contract that's going for three years, and there's a possibility the new product would displace it. There's an awful lot in you can't necessarily go out and displace the old product until the contract is up, unless you know. Somebody comes up with the money, which is not like you know budgets are tight. So that's 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 a not that's a fairly uncommon occurrence where you just say, oh sure, we'll take one more. You know, so I think there's a lot of timing. There's a lot of you know getting into practice groups, getting lawyers' attention. Uh, you know, I, I was at a, a meeting this morning where somebody was saying, look at all the things partners are expected to do. They're supposed to practice law. They're supposed to be, be in sales and sell the business. They're supposed to mentor. Partners have, you know, their bandwidth is really, really stretched. And then come along and say, and by the way, we really need your attention. We want you to focus on changing the way we do these things and just getting products through the process of, Take a look. We'll do a test. 
We'll do the transition. That's, that's complicated, and especially the larger the organization, the more complicated the uh, the timeline and the transition is. So, you know, I think it, I think it shouldn't be oversimplified. I think it is important. It's very important to look at new products, but you're just not going to adapt every good new product the minute you see it. I like that concept the way you you put it that librarians are were curating um, access to the uh, services. I, I think a lot of us don't think of it that way. We think of curating just when we're acquiring um, aspects of the collection, but a lot of these services are our new collections. So well, that's, that's helpful. I, mean, I think maybe that's. That's a big difference between the, the the institution I'm in now. We really have very limited print resources. We're we're relying mostly on digital resources. So all of the the same thinking that used to go around traditional acquisitions is now focused on on digital products and seeing how they fit in the mix, how they compete, how, what's the quality, what's the currency. So it's it, it, it's a very complicated assessment process. Yeah, and one of the things that, and, and Gene touched on this, talking about timing, but a, another issue that's going on is that uh, in in dealing with the current contracts and, and resources that we have, uh, there is such a commingling of different products, you know, where your your print is tied to your online and and one product is is tied to another there's there's a whole lot of tying going on especially when it comes to to Thomson Reuters and and Lexus um that it's not just like you can go okay I can I can get rid of this one product and replace it with this other product because now when I get rid of that product well that may have a a domino effect on two other products that, that I have mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's very very complicated, and and add to that, we're almost in a mini dot com boom again, um, mm-hmm. except now we're in an artificial intelligence or machine learning type environment or analytics tools environment where, you know, every day or every week it seems like there's you know another product that's coming out, you know there's the the Ross product, everyone's getting access to Watson, so they're coming up with you know, uh, a lot of little things. Typically, and, and this is why I think you're you're seeing these products come out. Typically, based on federal rules or federal laws that can take advantage of standard application of rules across or uh, um, you know, like PACER and and federal government. Now. But we deal. I'm, you know, I'm in a Texas firm. We deal a lot with state court, and you know, it's it's great to to get, uh, you know, Ross, which deals with bankruptcy, but that's you know, a, a one fourteenth of our uh, of our practice groups, and so you know, I'm I'm dealing with all this other stuff as as well. So, you know, I can, <laughs> it, it's it's nice, but um, man, it is it's tough to to get to review it yourself, find something, even when you find something that you think is a game changer, 
to then try and get it in front of the attorneys who are billing 2,400 hours of you know, a year <laughs> and, you know, or, or yeah. maybe in trial or, you know, that's, uh, it, it's just, it's just really, really tough. And I'm, and it's, and it's something that, that we do a, a good job of because it's, it's not easy to do it, but we still do it. I agree. I mean, I think that it's one of the most important things we do. We have to be the eyes and ears of the firm and understanding the culture, understanding the practice, and saying, wow, this could fit in well, and maybe it can't fit in today. You know, it, we might be able to do this for next year. And the other thing, sometimes you hang back and say, this product looks interesting, but it's not quite there yet. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to adopt it today, but I'm going to watch this one. And I think in a year or two, that's something I'm going to push for. Hmm. Elizabeth, do you have any well, how, thoughts on um, the academic side or, or things that you've seen with the um, practicing folks in Florida there? Um, I, well, I can't speak as much to the practicing folks, but I, I think, I mean, I, all I can do is just echo many of the, the points that have already been made. I think, especially right now, I, maybe it's the, the business, you know, the, the rapid fire that we got a uh, pace of business that these companies have to turn a profit very quickly. Um, I feel like I'm seeing maybe, and, you know, I've only been in this industry, you know, well, maybe I've been in longer than I care to admit now, but um, it seems like now we're seeing more products that are maybe, like you said, not quite there yet. And, you know, at least on the academic side, you know, I'm being, there's a certain very expensive product, actually a regulatory kind of information product that I'm like, mm, I don't think it's quite there yet, especially for the dollar amount that they were asking. But I'm going to pay attention to it. But, um, yeah, and there, there's more than – that's just the first one that came to mind. But, yeah, I, th- I feel like we're seeing more products that are maybe that minimum viable product stage rather than a fully – matured, really uh, robust product that would command the prices that we would, you know, typically see for these things. The other the other kinds of products we're seeing more of are, are products that help with uh, drafting and actually using, you know, linguistic analysis is an interesting new product from LitIQ from the, the fella Gary Sangha who did um, he also affiliated with um, uh, help me out here the, <laughs> the Stanford Codex of Stanford Codex. Uh, but it, it's an interesting product that takes corporate documents and reviews them for ambiguities it goes beyond mm. looking at uh, punctuation and inconsistent terms that looks at meaning and so uh, this is the sort of thing it's like that is really interesting I mean that's 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 uh, that that could possibly t- save lawyers time uh, be a risk control product to help uh, people avoid risks of, of ambiguities in, in the documents they're drafting so I, I think there's a, you know as Greg said there's so many interesting products coming out right now it's hard to, you know, it takes time to figure out where do they, they fit. And, and, you know, there was a lot of excitement about CARA and the way it looks at it takes, uh, you can just drop a document into it and it looks and it says, 
judges tend to cite to these four cases that you haven't cited to. I mean, this is exciting stuff. I feel like a kid in a candy store. I love looking at all these new products. Well, that, that, that raises an interesting question for me. Do you think, especially on the practice side of things, um, vendors are maybe investing less into pure, purely research-related products and more into practice-related products Absolutely. that will or drafting, efficiency, that kind of thing? Well, well, I wouldn't say necessarily they're doing less on research. I think they are tying research to workflow. They're mm. tightening the integration between research and workflow. And, you know, for example, I have no doubt that uh, Lexus and Wesla, everybody is going to try and, you know, I think they all probably have relationships with Watson where they're going to try and somehow build products that are more Watson-like over time. But in the meantime, you know, you have the, the, the workflow and the practice guides and now, you know, the, the proofreading guides. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that are making pieces of law practice, you know, more of a, a lot of the tedious work is being uh, streamlined and, and, and so that it, it would take a lawyer less time to do a review document. The other thing I have to say is after pushing vendors for years, one of the things I – you know, they'll, they'll come in and we'll show your product and say, it's going to make you more efficient. We'll do some tests and give me what kind of, you're saying it'll save me five minutes or it'll save me six hours. And I am actually pleased that vendors are starting to come up with some kind of analytics to say, this is the scale of, of savings that, that you could anticipate. And then we'll have a different, like almost a menu of things. For this function, it'll save, it'll cut the time by 20% for this by 10%. So I, I find it very helpful to sort of have that, especially when firms are facing, uh, you know, looking more at alternative fee arrangements and really trying to drive efficiency into the practice. I think that is a really helpful way to be able to look at new products. Yeah. Gene, that, that reminds me. I'll, I'll I'll flip that story on its head a little bit. Um, I I asked a vendor, and I won't mention names here, but uh, they had a they have a product that can go through and and review multiple, you know, hundreds and maybe, you know, uh, potentially thousands of documents, and and do that automatically, and and call that information and, and identify documents that are high risk versus those that are low risk. <clears throat> and they're like, you know, this will save you, you know, uh, that, you know, just tons of time. And that way you can, instead of charging by the hour, you, you charge by the document or you charge by uh, the project. And uh, so I asked them, I said, well, how long does it take you to get this up so that it works like this? And when I finally got an answer from them, it took – something like four to six full-time people, six months in order to do this <laughs> oh. one thing. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I don't know that I can afford the front. You know, that'd be great if that's my business. And and for some, it will be. And, and you know, and that being said, they will also be able to get that time down. It's it's just like mm -hmm. anything. The first time, it takes forever, and the second time, it takes a half forever. Um, so it, and, you know, it just, uh, it's one of those things, but it's a huge investment. It's not a plug and play environment. It's, it's things you have to, you have to train the systems, you have to train the people, you have to have the right documents. 
and you have to have consistently the same type of work. If your if your work fluctuates, then you got to adjust every single time you go in to do it. So, um, you know, th those are things that we run into. That man, it sounds great on paper, but when I go to actually implement it, it doesn't really fit our needs. And that's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, we got to start wrapping it up here. Um, based on um, your last comment, so um, I'll ask on behalf of uh, my colleagues here um, in academics, what you were mentioning Roth and then um, Watson. Both of you mentioned Watson. Watson legal application actually making any kind of presence known in firms already? I mean, are, is it there? Well, it's, it's, a number of firms have bought Roth, which Roth is built on Watson. That's my understanding. And I know that I mean, Thomson oh. Reuters did a big announcement that they had entered into a relationship with IBM. So I do expect oh. at some point we'll be seeing something from Thomson. And, I, and I've also heard that Lexus has a relationship, but I'm not, I'm not positive. I haven't seen a press release on that one. Yeah, but Greg, what Watson, have you seen? Yeah, uh, the, we have the Alexa search advantage, and it's got the Watson search engine. You're kidding. Mm -mm. From from Alexa? Yeah. Jeez. Oh, I don't know. Does Watson? Does anybody know? Is there any rumors? Or Watson have an ability to teach law? Well, that I would, would I would say I would say at some point yes. Um, it, that this is going to be something that's just going to be the new iteration of, of how things are indexed, compiled, and searched. Um, and so, you know, it used to be that the only really good way to search something was was to to have a librarian that could do an ultimate Boolean search. Then it became, you know, uh, instead of so much focus on how the search terms are, it's how you index. Um, and so now it's more about, uh, with with uh, Watson, it's much more about how it's not just indexed, but analyzed so that uh, common questions can be answered. And it's not that, what, what we call natural language search. Uh, this is like natural language search 5.0 is as many generations right. advanced there. Right. Um, you know, and so, and I think uh, Ross, for example, one of their, one of their selling points is because they do, uh, I think bankruptcy is their focus right now and they're, they're expanding, but right now it's bankruptcy. You know, it's, you're supposed to be able to go in and ask questions like, you know, Hey, I live in, I live in Arizona. Can I discharge my student loan debt in, uh, bankruptcy, and it's supposed to be able to take that and call out what what it is you're actually looking for and get you to the answer quicker. Um, it, I, I, I'm not going to say one way or the other, but I think there's still some learning to 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 go before it it really fits uh, the way we we would want it and, and find uh, effective. I do think that um, I'll give like one minute comment here. I do think though that this model of uh, sort of conversational interface and uh, conversational uh, pursuit of knowledge though is, I mean, there's a lot of hype, but there's also I think a lot of um, possibility behind it and things that are out there already 
where this is happening. You know, um, Jean mentioned this Kara product that Case Text is introducing. You put a brief in, it gives you things back. And there's also a lot of things in the um, access to justice area where there's, you know, I'm filing a pleading. How many people are, you know, on the docket? And you sort of have a back and forth process of things. And the more intelligence there is on the back end, the more meaningful the putting concepts in, getting results out to pursue a particular workflow uh, then tends to go. And is it guided intelligence? Is it a highly structured algorithm with really good search tools on the back? It's working. It really doesn't matter. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, um, we've only got five minutes uh, left uh, together. I, you know, in Gene and um, Greg, you know, is there what should we be doing as academics to prepare our students? Uh, for, or is there anything that we should be doing differently to prepare them for entering um, the real world? Well, you know, I, I think that certainly they should know more about business. You know, I mean, I think you have to make business an adjunct to law now, especially if they want to go into a big law firm, because there's there's the aspect of business of what are the economics of law firms? I mean, it's it's law firms are turning from just profit, um, from just how many hours do you bill, but having to understand what makes certain kinds of business profitable. Um, but I also think, you know, understanding spreadsheets, understanding uh, financial statements, understanding a lot of business concepts, are really, really important and being competent at technology. And I think last year at AALL, I think there were several programs uh, focused on that very issue of how do we make lawyers more technologically competent in law school because, you know, a generation is going to come where the millennials are going to be running law firms. And I think that they – you know, I, I would love for law schools to be turning out people who are really not just comfortable with uh, with Facebook and um, and Twitter, but you know other kinds of technology, so that they could they could really bring more kinds of innovation and encourage older partners to adopt innovation. You know, because it, it, the change is going to come, but uh, I think law schools could can help it move along. Yeah I, yeah, I spoke with uh, the University of Oklahoma a few months ago uh, uh, remotely, and um, you know, and in, in OU, which is my alma mater, you know, most of those graduates do not go to big law firms. They they go to very small law firms or their you know solo uh, or, or small firms. Yeah. And um, I used the quote that uh, Casey Flaherty, who co-blogs with me, he's the Kia uh, guy. Um, and that's you know all of this all these fancy tools are great. I want the attorney to understand how to use Microsoft Word, PowerPoint, uh, PDF, how to say things in PDFs, how to do forms, the basic stuff because they're coming to me and they have no idea how to use these basic tools. That's because I can teach them the other stuff. That sort yeah. of stuff I don't want to have to teach them. So we should be cranking out um, students, graduates who are, you know, just basically 
computer literate and comfortable with technology. Yeah, because right now they're users. They're they're you know yeah. they yeah. um on an entertainment level almost rather than a useful level. I've heard it characterized best as oh. that they're they're consumers. They're not professional users of technology. Mm. Perfect. That's that's it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's uh, wrap it up. I want to thank everybody for joining us. I think it was a fun discussion, um, and it was fun to be back in the um, back in the saddle again. Back in this um, <laughs> law librarian conversations, we've had a great time. Um, as I said at the beginning of the show, we're uh, Roger, Elizabeth, and I are committed to trying to crank this out once a month uh, for the foreseeable future. And we'd love to hear from people who are listening, who are in the chat room, or uh, download it uh, later um, and uh, with ideas of um, you know possible show uh, programs or guests. Uh, volunteer. Don't be shy. And um, we'd like to... Um, you know, invite people to join in the chat room and call in. Uh, there's a lot of ways that you can participate. So we appreciate you uh, being here with us. Um, Greg and and Jean, uh, appreciate you joining us today. Both of you have been on multiple times, and so I'm starting to think of you as extended family and um, panelists anyway. So uh, and, and you're both welcome anytime you're free so um so we'll definitely keep you on the list um roger and elizabeth thanks very much uh again for joining us and our next program is october 21st we look forward to seeing everybody again excellent see you all then thanks everyone yeah thanks. see you then bye-bye now Bye-bye. Bye.